Welcome to Our Sick Society, a podcast series where researchers from King's College London and people with lived experience explore together how social factors contribute to mental health problems. But we'll also have some guest presenters inviting people who tell us their stories to investigate the issues that they're interested in, as well as the ones that we think are important. We want to make you think and question society's role in mental health. What are the systems and the structures which mean some people are more likely to be mentally unwell than others? And crucially, what steps should society take from national government policies to local grassroots community organising? How can we cure our sick society? I'm Elena. I'm a research assistant at the Centre for Society and Mental Health, and I'll be your host for this episode of Our Sick Society. Today, in honour of International Refugee Week, we'll be exploring the social aspects of mental health as they relate to people who have been displaced or affected by violent conflicts. The social conditions of war and conflict shape the landscape of mental health for those affected by violence, persecution, and displacement. In this episode, we'll explore together how social relationships within conflict settings interact with structures and interventions designed to address mental health needs. We'll also hear how power dynamics stretching far beyond the conflict zone shape the very definitions of mental health and the way that people on the ground are able to respond to crises. Worldwide lockdowns have drawn attention to the mental health effects of social isolation and sheltering in place. With lockdowns still fresh in our minds, many of us haven't stopped to think about the ways these struggles, loss, disconnection, rootlessness, are experienced when people are forcefully displaced from their homes. The war in Ukraine has reignited conversations that have echoed on the global stage since the outbreak of the Syrian war in 2011. How can we represent the experiences of refugees and what kind of aid is truly helpful? To help us unpack all these themes, we'll be hearing from four fantastic speakers with decades of research and practical experience between them. Well, uh, my name is Ogano Muzurike, and uh, I'm a Global Mental Health Master's student. I'm from Nigeria. I'm a psychiatrist by training. That's our first guest. We met at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine, where we're both studying. Before he was a psychiatrist, Ogan was a medical student and then a general practitioner. He became fascinated with the way some of his patients seemed to lose touch with reality and took the necessary exams to become a consultant psychiatrist. Now he works for the Nigerian Ministry of Defense. And uh, because uh, defense is war-related, that brought me in contact with quite a number who are affected and victims of, of war. Um, one of the things that conflict does is, uh, especially armed conflict, it displaces people. And uh, there are quite a number who have been displaced because of conflict. And, uh, you know, people are attached to where they come from, central lands and all that. So to suddenly, violently displace somebody, it's a whole lot of, uh, it affects the, the person's psyche, that's one. Then uh, most conflicts also come with destruction, or that's killings. You know, I have had to speak with a young boy who, who, whose father was killed in his presence. You know, uh, those are not memories that people really will want to share with you. 
and the person escaped in order to, to be alive. You know, you see whole house burnt down, you know, where you've been all your life, you grew up, and then somebody comes, not just burning it down, killed the people, and uh, you barely escaped, and you see all those things. So the imagery of those things sometimes give people nightmares, and uh, they wake up shouting and all that. Uh, when those type of thing begins to happen, that's when people begin to think, I think there's something wrong, especially when the incident has passed. You know, and uh, those are some of the precursors to PTSD, you know, and depression. That's uh, what happened. Then people sustain personal losses, you know. Um, you know, uh, life events, adverse life events are one of the risk factors actually, that can cause somebody who is predisposed to come down with mental illness, adverse life events. Now, one of sorting personal losses, you know, in terms of loved ones, resources, livelihood, you know. Then social disruption. Family, sometimes you don't know where our family members are. You don't even know whether they are alive or whether they are dead because everybody was trying to escape for his or her life. So the, that uncertainty about the welfare of others, it takes a, an emotional toll on, the, on those who are involved. How do you separate the shock of these losses? from a mental health condition that can be treated. I guess I'm asking with so much loss and grief and suffering that you're describing, how does mental health come into play from your perspective as a psychiatrist? People should be sad when you lost your loved ones, when you are displaced. But it is a continuing process and to the degree beyond which one would have said, something needed to be done. Or you're anxious, yeah. Uh, when you come from a conflict environment, you always be anxious, yeah, because uh, you don't know whether something is going to happen. But you stayed in a, a relatively safe environment for two weeks. There had been no incidents of uh, war. There has no disruption. Everything is going on. But you are still jittery at the slightest. Then what we begin to wonder is like, and it's different from all what other people's uh, behavior. Then, you begin to want to take a closer look, you know, to ensure that uh, if that person needed help, the person gets the help. Usually there are no provision for mental health to address the needs that will arise. And, you know, um, in the acute uh, situation, when people have encountered violence or been traumatized, uh, they, they could have what you call acute stress disorder, in the immediate moment, you know, uh, anxiety and all that. But as it progresses, they could have PTSD, depression, substance use, and all that, they come up. As we've heard on previous episodes of the show, different cultural understandings of trauma also shape how people recognize and seek help for mental conditions. Um, in Nigeria, the common belief um, most times is that mental illness are spiritually based. I mean, it's caused by spirits. And people don't want to see it as something that can be treated by conventional medicine. And then because uh, people have different cultures, the way they define mental illness is different from what you may know, you know? Like I, I told you, somebody who is having anxiety may say the person is overthinking. You know, 
Oh, somebody having to say the person is stressed. The person sleeps. It's, it's going to get better. So, and so the first part of call usually would be to go to traditional healers or religious healers to exercise the spirit that's disturbing the person. That, that would be the first, you know. Though things are changing gradually because people are getting to know that, yeah, mental illness could actually be treated. Mental disorder, uh, it, could, it could be amenable to uh, medication. Ogan has worked in camps for internally displaced peoples, or IDPs, as well as in hospital settings. In the camps, he would conduct outreach to make people aware of the common symptoms of mental health disorders, beyond the acute psychosis that he mentioned. In some of those outreaches, when you interact with people, sometimes it's the community leaders in such camps that say, this thing you are describing, I think there is somebody here that fits into that description, and they will send for the person. You know? So there is a whole lot of self-referral and referral by significant others who have watched and they felt that this person can benefit from the type of thing you are discussing. It might seem obvious, but it's worth repeating. Every refugee setting is different, just like every conflict has its own history and context. Still, there's a tendency to frame displaced people as traumatized in the same, or at least in similar ways. Our second guest spoke with me about how these assumptions have shaped her work and lived experience. Okay, um, my name is Suraya Azre, and I'm a researcher based in Lebanon. Suraya's background is in medical anthropology, and she began her research career with a focus on conflict and health. Now, building on her lived experience, she has shifted focus from public health more broadly to look at mental health in national and international perspective. I worked with the National Mental Health Program for a while, and then I started working on the Goal Project with LSHTM in 2020. And I'm also the co-founder of the first uh, Mental Health Service User Association in Lebanon that is currently in the process of being um, registered legally and being formed. Thanks so much for being here with us. Uh, can you tell me a bit more about the GOAL project that you're working on with the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine? So GOAL stands for Supporting Government Partners in Health System Strengthening for Better Mental Health of Syrian Refugees and Host Communities in Lebanon. So that's the full title and it was abbreviated to GOAL. And basically the aim of the research is to find out how to support and strengthen uh, the government and partners to meet the mental health needs of vulnerable communities in Lebanon. So specifically refugees and host communities that have been affected by the protracted displacement. And a really key feature of GOAL is that it involves co-production as a kind of way of conducting and designing the research. Thraya has done extensive research on mental health and has also seen the kinds of interventions she researches from the inside as a service user. She found that the definitions of trauma at the core of many government and NGO-sponsored mental health programs weren't always aligning with reality. In Lebanon and in refugee settings in, in general, but I, I will talk about Lebanon, um, we have this uh, really prevailing trauma approach um, uh, that is being applied because it's a conflict setting and a protracted displacement setting. And um, there's a lot of work that's been done to really 
be critical of the all-encompassing trauma approach. There have been efforts to adapt a lot of the screening tools taking into account local idiom and local expressions of distress. Um, but also um, often because of this approach where um, that's usually set again away from the local setting and, and applied in the local setting, we become very quick as practitioners, as public health practitioners, as mental health practitioners, to start pathologizing normal reactions um, to really distressing circumstances and often human rights abuses um, because it fits within these objectives that need to be followed through. When people think of a refugee setting, a setting that's defined by migration, there's so many different needs that they think of arising in those settings. And I think first we think about food insecurity and access to shelter and trying to find kind of more permanent housing. Where does mental health fit into that constellation and how do you figure out what to prioritize in these kinds of situations where there's so much need for all different kinds of health-related support? Okay, the first thing that I would like to clarify is that when we're talking about protracted displacement situation, we have maybe two very broad categories of mental health issues that we're facing, issues as in topics. The first is people who are coming, uh, fleeing, have pre-existing mental health conditions that have interrupted their treatment or had their conditions exacerbated because of the stress of displacement. And that's a need that needs to be addressed. And it sometimes gets lost in the other side of mental health in refugee settings, which is the general MHPSS, mental health psychosocial support, kind of all-encompassing uh, support for people that are living in distress because they have fled or because of displacement or because of shelter and food insecurity and all of these other concerns and also because of trauma related to living in war and in conflict. And the definitely sometimes we tend to overlook those who have pre-existing health needs and there needs to be very targeted interventions in these situations to find those individuals and to be able to help them access the care they need. But in terms of the other needs that arise, arise from a humanitarian setting that are often called competing needs, uh, and uh, which I find very interesting because I think they're complementary, and I think we all know they're complementary, but for some reason they're always referred to as competing needs. And this is probably because of the structure of the humanitarian system and how it functions and how we hear this all the time, like things happen in silos. And it's true, things are categorically boxed off and it makes it very difficult uh, sometimes to have a more holistic approach towards mental health. Because I think that work on mental health over the last few decades has shown us that mental health is intrinsically linked to food security and other forms of security and shelter and housing. However, because of the way that the system is structured, 
um, these things happen separately and addressing these needs often happens separately with few intersections here and there. So what I'm hearing is that the refugee setting kind of homogenizes people's views of what mental health is in that situation. So it makes us think that mental health can be addressed through these kinds of one-size-fits-all interventions. But also it assumes that refugees are always going to be service users and not also service providers or service constructors. Yes, and I wanted to add that the social, economic, material determinants of mental health become buried when mental health and psychosocial support is squared off into its own little sector. And I think that when, if a more holistic approach is taken, then it's not just that we don't no longer see all refugees as these traumatized victim, eternal service users, actually, maybe providing food security, maybe providing shelter, maybe providing education. Maybe these are the things that are needed to alleviate the mental health burden on refugees, not, you know, like a theater program that's going to last six weeks with and then disappear because the funding is over. Um, it's, it's really about the big question that we always face in mental health and specifically in social sciences and mental health, which is, yes, there are very real, very distressing mental health conditions that are extremely painful and that need treatment on the way to recovery. But also a lot of mental health issues, especially in situations of high distress and displacement and conflict and insecurity are due to social factors. So we need to be addressing those as well. You have such a wide range of knowledge about mental health interventions from the perspective of academic, advocate, service user, and implementer. In your experience, who decides what counts as mental health in humanitarian and conflict settings? Okay, this is a really complex, but not complicated, complex, question with very, I would say, anthropological roots. Um, I am biased. But I think that um, the rise of global mental health as a discipline that's kind of coming up uh, against really just the traditional uh, approach towards mental health has shown us that uh, in the humanitarian field or in humanitarian settings, the concept of like mental health and specifically trauma um, have traditionally been generated in institutions um, in the West. And for a very long time in public health interventions or humanitarian interventions have been imported as is um, into the settings that um, are being uh, worked on or where the work is happening. And, uh, you know, global mental health as a field, it, there really have been efforts to expand definitions of mental health to uh, adjust tools that are used for screening, for diagnosing, uh, to include more culturally specific concepts and more contextual factors. But the reality is on the ground that although this is really strong work that is going on, and I do feel optimistic about this work, 
as it stands, in a lot of cases, the definitions of mental health, the tools, the diagnostic tools, the screenings, everything that is being used um, often comes from the kind of uh, institutions that are implementing interventions and are also tied to uh, donors and the donor needs and donor requirements and these decisions that are made on that level on the donor level in an office far far away from the local setting they often influence like the screening and the programming that happens on the ground they often influence what are the perceived needs uh, that are on the ground um, simply by influencing what tools are used and what methodologies are used really and there is this disconnect between who writes the priorities, who chooses the tools and the interventions, and the people who are meant to be receiving those tools who are actually a very heterogeneous group. Thinking back on your experience, are there any ways you've seen people, policymakers, implementers, and mental health practitioners address some of these disconnects? I have seen some efforts to facilitate the participation of mental health service users in higher level decision making. However, those efforts have been very limited and they also do not reflect a willingness or an ability to perceive uh, service users as having the capacity to contribute uh, more than they are asked to contribute. So the most basic level of mental health service user involvement that happens is in the form of consultation. Although this is quite passive a lot of the times, uh, organizations will tell you that they hand out feedback forms, uh, that sometimes they hold focus groups. But as far as I've seen, and as far as I understand from those organizations and the people carrying out these activities, there are really no mechanisms that allow for service users to be involved before or after the consultation. And of course, to get to the source of many of these issues, you've got to follow the money. Ogan again. One of the challenges I've encountered in the course of that is uh, the lack of adequate funding and attention to mental illness. Even in the setting where I work, sometimes we develop programs, we want to carry out um, a mental health uh, program. Uh, the, there is not that um, promptness or urgency to foot the bill so that you could do that. You know? So many times the program drags on, sometimes eventually not get done. So. It's usually quite frustrating. Reporting on wars and disasters brings attention to these struggles, but often not for long. This has particular implications for mental health care, as need may grow over time. And of course, you know, like uh, those are usually referred to at the honeymoon stage, everybody wants to come around to her, but it's not sustained. Because uh, after the initial few weeks and months, Everybody goes, you know. And then when everybody goes, the needs now become more because all the people who've been responding at those immediate moments are no longer coming. And unfortunately, there are those, those things are not like permanent structures to try to put in place to address the problem. And then when those periods are gone, 
most times the, the mental um, health problems now begin to come in because most people are lost in the immediate response, you know. But now the reality is now beginning to down on the person. You begin to take in the essence of the laws. Initially, you were all after surviving, but now you've survived. You are now faced with the reality of, okay, how do I move on from here? And I think that what happens is when MHPSS delivery becomes tied to donor budgets and requirements, we end up having short-lived, uh, short-sighted interventions that have a limited scope um, with a budget that's not always sustainable. And I think this is something that's not re related only to mental health. This is something that's been a main criticism of humanitarian response over many, many years. Um, but also, it leads to a dilution of the meaning of terms such as mental health and PS as psychosocial support uh, in order to better fit funding requirements, for example. These kinds of informed, constructive criticisms of humanitarian approaches, I think, are the starting points to rethinking dominant processes of research, funding, and implementation. It seems that we're at a unique moment to do this now, after the past few years of upheaval on this massive global scale, and of course, the inequalities that it revealed and exacerbated. You know, one of the things that COVID did was that it suddenly made people realize that mental health is important. Because people were locked down at home three, three months, four months, five months. So all of a sudden, the mental health needs became very obvious to everybody. And then, uh, but you see, as, as it is, as if COVID is no longer the, the, the tendency is to go back to the status quo. One possible way forward is to change the way that we think about research who decides what to research and whose voice matters in the research process, who gets to claim what comes out of it. Thurai explained that this kind of co-production was a key part of the Goal Research Project and something she hopes will be adopted more widely. The aim of co-production in research uh, is literally to co-produce research and also on another level to co-produce interventions. Um, and by that, um, we mean involving all stakeholders uh, in decision-making process, which is something that traditionally we don't find in research. So in terms of research, usually there is a hierarchy of decision-making and often the executive decisions or the planning um, or the main decision-making takes place at a higher level academically and also often in the funding countries and not the countries where research is taking place here. I'm talking about research that takes place in usually the global south. And um, without involvement of local partners and local actors. And then also on another level, like in terms of at least mental health research, without the involvement of the service users themselves, who are meant to be the beneficiaries and the subjects, uh, or rather the objects of this research. So what the co-production approach aims to do is like to challenge and really break down these power hierarchies in research, whether they're inside the academic institution itself or between the countries um, and between the stakeholders. Uh, and this is also something we see a lot in humanitarian work. So I think you can extrapolate what I'm saying to humanitarian work. Uh, where the main decisions are usually made um, 
in funding countries that are not in the global south, really. Ogan has similar reflections from his work with internally displaced people. You know, you know sometimes the other mistake about humanitarian response is that people, it's like a hit and run job. You just come, boom, take off. So people now get to get used to the fact that we don't know they'll soon disappear and won't see them again. But when you engage them, when you want to make them feel that they are part of what is going on, and they have a lot to do, not just as vulnerable recipients, but participators, uh, partners in what is going on. There have been IDPs five years, ten years are still there. So they eventually form a community. And if it's properly managed, you find out that even the rate of the mental illness withdrawal, because there is a good um, uh, connection and relationship with, with the people. So definitely, that's the, the, the best way to go, because uh, if you keep doing things the other way, you will be having short-term results that are not long-lasting and are not effective. It's not enough to invite service users to have a seat at the table. They need to pave the way to get to that table. A lot of service users come from very marginalized communities. A lot of service users face stigma every day and the repetition of the idea that they do not have mental capacity. A lot of refugees and refugee service users are coming from very oppressive and repressive structures. So there needs to be an active commitment to make these arenas, if you want, or these spaces accessible to us. That means time and resources and funds need to be allocated for this in all of these spaces, in the research space, in the policymaking space, and otherwise. We have, for example, a protracted chronic marginalization of Palestinian refugees, who many of whom are actually practitioners in mental health, and many of whom are more often than not excluded from having a seat at the table and, and taking decisions and setting priorities not just giving feedback and comments. We have many people in the Syrian refugee community who are community leaders who are able to contribute to the discussion around priority setting for mental health. And in Lebanon, we should also be making a much bigger effort to include and to find channels to include service users from all around the country, from different backgrounds. And in doing so, this may help in having more effective interventions that are more catered to the needs of the community. The Raya left us with some important questions to consider and apply to our own research work. How do we involve service users other than being a source of data that then we go off and we analyze on our own? How can they be involved in what questions are asked and what priorities are set all the way at the very starting process? To speak to these points, I invited two researchers based at King's College London Centre for Society and Mental Health who have used these questions to guide an innovative participatory research project. Hi, um, thanks for having us on. I'm Tessa Roberts. I'm a postdoctoral research fellow at the Centre for Society and Mental Health. 
Um, my name is Dorota Bemmel. I'm a lecturer in society and mental health. I'm a medical anthropologist by training. Uh, and Tessa and I are leading the Together to Transform Mutual Learning Platform for Global Mental Health. I've been working with Tessa and Dorota on the Together to Transform project for the past few months. It brings together 40 researchers and mental health practitioners from around the world to discuss many of the issues we've heard about already on this podcast. They've shared their experiences starting their own community mental health organizations, working for international aid groups, conducting mental health research, and measuring impact. The project is special because all outputs are entirely decided by the collaborators themselves. Tessa explained that Together to Transform grew out of their own vision of what co-production could look like. So I guess the project was originally born out of the desire to change the way that global mental health is done. So historically, it's been largely focused on individual treatment. And both of our research has led us to believe that we need to take a broader view that understands mental health within social context. So this project was originally attempting to link global mental health with um, public mental health, uh, a lot of the themes that are addressed by the Centre for Society and Mental Health. And we wanted to do so in a way that brings insights from across disciplines, so both the social sciences and the more quantitatively oriented global mental health disciplines, so the psychiatric epidemiology, um, people developing and testing interventions and RCTs, that kind of thing. Um, and bringing together expertise from academia with um, expertise from the ground. So practitioners uh, and people with lived experience working in a variety of, of low resource contexts. And what it's kind of evolved to be is a, is a mutual learning platform where we've kind of brought together these different groups of stakeholders um, in an attempt to learn from each other and trying to work towards generating more practice-based evidence is the way that we've put it, that we stole from Hannah Kiemsler and her work. The collaborators organized themselves into groups according to the themes they most wanted to explore. One of these groups formed around a shared interest in lived experience, resilience, and trauma. The group very much grapples with the, uh, with the psychiatric definition of trauma, which is relatively narrow and defines caseness through an index event and a causality, which then uh, is linked to the effects and symptoms of trauma. And we often in that group work from this narrow perspective by acknowledging that in many, uh, that this definition is not particularly useful or shared by the communities in which protracted or sustained violence is, uh, is the everyday experience. So a lot of the work is focused on um, on thinking creatively on how we can perhaps contribute to rethinking um, and researching trauma differently through the eyes, through the experience of those who have experienced similar circumstances. So I think that is a, a starting point uh, from which the conversations uh, depart and that they return to because on the other end of that spectrum there is the fear of so-called bracket creep that once you expand the definition of trauma and include more and more variations and experiences and and and, and expand it to entire communities there is also the fear on the side of clinicians that you pathologize large communities or that communities need to be then also defined and by virtue of doing that, there may be new fears emerging around um, essentializing certain experiences of, of whole groups and pathologizing them in the process. 
I'm wondering if we could backtrack for a minute and talk about your original motivations to do this project. Why is it important to come up with a shared language about the social determinants of mental health? I'm asking because our other guests have recognized a similar need, but have also brought up some important points about the dangers of imposing definitions of mental health across cultures and contexts. I think that first impetus was really to create an alternative uh, narrative to the psychiatric and biomedical lens, which is highly individualizing and um, creates one particular set of conditions of possibilities to engage with mental distress and mental health. And the desire to create or to integrate and give voice to and space to alternative ways of understanding mental suffering really guided this project in order to, to, to really com complexify the discourse. Is it necessary to, to entirely integrate all of these different perspectives? I'm not sure it is, but what is important is to, to put them into dialogue and to see if shared objective or those that have actually historically been silenced can be brought to the fore um, in order to counteract what may perhaps have been a very dominant perspective, the one that can be operationalized through quantitative methodologies, through epidemiology, through universal measurement, which may have taken precedence over the very particular and situated uh, experiences, um, causal relations and effects that, that, that people of different backgrounds and professions um, find helpful in explaining and addressing mental distress. It's slightly different, and I think this is part of the joy of working with people from different disciplines. You know, Doherty and I deliberately wanted to work together because we're interested in similar things but come from, from distinct backgrounds. And to me, it's not so much about necessarily sort of replacing or, or shifting away from the methods that have traditionally been dominant, which uses medical categories and, you know, uses epidemiological approaches and so on. It's, it's about recognizing their incompleteness and it's about recognizing that this kind of research could be done better if we listened to social scientists. And it could be done better if we listened to people with lived experience, personal lived experience, as well as, you know, the experience of people who are trying to implement locally appropriate forms of support on the ground. And I think all of these different ways of knowing and ways of generating knowledge could be better if we actually learn from one another and the problem is that that typically we we don't we have our own language and we have our own silos and we read our own journals and we talk to people within our own bubbles and therefore we're not challenged on is there something fundamental we're overlooking and I think we also we need different types of evidence for different purposes you know if we're thinking about using evidence as a way of convincing diverse stakeholders into action you know we need we need the the statistical evidence we need the the the, the storytelling we need people who can talk to this stuff from from a personal perspective we need these ways of doing research to be informed by what actually matters to the people we're trying to help and the people who are dealing with this stuff day in, day out on the ground. So I guess that was sort of part of the, the rationale of trying to get these people into a room together, um, including the voices of people whose approaches have traditionally been dominant and getting them to listen to what they might be missing. 
Yeah, no, th thank you, Tessa. I really appreciate that because I think the focus or the, the, the really important bit is the mutual bit, that knowledge doesn't flow from one direction in the other, but that it's actually an open-ended process where we learn from each other. And really learning requires input, not just output and telling each other how it really is, but to sort of um, approach each other with humility and curiosity. I think initially, uh, one of our main collaborators and um, our PIs, Hannah Kienzler, said um, in order to balance also the, the sort of power imbalances implicit in global mental health, it's not that people need to hear from us, they need to hear from each other. Um, and so that was inspirational to me in a sense to create a space in which people can hear from each other and find the people they need to hear from who have the solutions that they're looking um, for answers to. And that is something that we cannot centrally steer and direct, but we just basically want to create a space in which these problems and priorities can actually be identified by the people who know most about it within their settings. At the core of this project is a theme or a call to action that has emerged across activist spaces, university campuses, and boardrooms in recent years. Decolonization. Okay, yeah, decolonization is... Uh, <laughs> uh, sometimes it looks, it looks like a cliché. <laughs> Everybody, oh, decolonize, decolonize, decolonize. And uh, having looked at it, sometimes I asked myself, what's decolonization? What, what are you trying to really do? People really understand what decolonize means. When you, before you decolonize, you are saying that somebody has been colonized. Now you want to decolonize. And decolonization comes in different forms. Now, it may not be colonization of a physical empire, a physical location. Now, you're talking about decolonization of knowledge. Now, uh, what I understand by that is that you, you, you want to change the way knowledge is acquired, the way things are viewed, not just through the eye of a particular person who you consider as a colonist. So when you are saying decolonization, what it means is that even, for instance, if I do a research in Nigeria, I will project a particular perspective from the local that may not fit with the research here. It may not fit because oh no 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 this is not this is not what the guidelines we are used to this is not the way it should be done so now allowing me to project a perspective different from the main perspective that everybody is used to that's why i consider decolonization i think that's what decolonization is all about allowing especially in the low- and middle-income countries. Let them drive the process. You can bring in, you can guide, you know, to make sure that it meets the minimum standard. But let them guide the process. Let them drive it. And then, of course, you know, many times funders, when it comes to research, they determine what you look for. They determine the data you collect. You know? So I think that's actually what decolonization should be all about. Decolonization of knowledge. Don't see only things through your perspective. See it through the eyes of others. And then that's where the, the difference comes. And then the diversity can now be managed for something good. 
What I've understood through my own research and conversations and what my guests further reinforce is that refugees do not exist in isolation, although they may suffer devastating losses. To address mental health needs, they build and rely on support systems that are inherently social. They recognize the shortcomings of the humanitarian and governmental systems that dictate how much and what kind of aid they receive. And as my guests emphasize, displaced people have the ability better than anyone else to explain their experience and to inform solutions if only they're asked and supported to do so. And this kind of thinking isn't unprecedented in health research and advocacy. I think there's really something to be learned from the disability rights movement um, that the service user movement was born from. And that's the phrase, nothing about us without us. And I think that that's a phrase that is so powerful that it's even really um, guiding our work here as a service user association and in terms of the advocacy work we do. And I think there is a lot to be learned from that because it was one of the first calls and the first demands to include persons with disabilities, persons with like social disabilities, uh, service users, in the planning and the decision-making process from the beginning. Our guests are putting their words into action. Dota and Tessa are continuing to work with their collaborators to co-produce papers, guidance documents, and spaces for open discussion. Ogon is working on a master's project that addresses funding mechanisms for mental health interventions. Thuraya is pushing to get her Service User Association officially recognized. And as for you, this Refugee Week, take a moment to think about how your work fits with what our guests have said. How can we make research more inclusive and demand more of the institutions that shape how research is done? Thank you for listening. This episode was hosted by me, Melena Worth. Production support was provided by Verity Buckley. This podcast is funded by the King's College London ESRC Impact Acceleration Account. If you want to know more about our guests or topics discussed in this episode, please visit the episode description for links and helpful resources. To stay up to date with future episodes, you can subscribe via your preferred podcasting platform. And please do leave us a review. It helps us to reach more listeners.